You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Allison Camerata. As you just heard, I'm an anchor on CNN's new 2 to 4 p.m. East Coast Time <laughs> program called Newsroom. It's starting this upcoming Monday. Hope you'll all join me. It is my pleasure to be in conversation this evening with my dear friend, Brooke Baldwin, mm. has been at CNN for 13 years. And she, of course, is the author of the new fabulous book that I have in my hot little hands called Huddle, How Women Unlock Their Collective Power. In her book, Brooke champions the power of the all-female huddle in the workplace and outside, which can propel women forward in transformative ways. If you have a question for Brooke, please submit those in the chat or the comment section, and we will get to those um, later in the program. Hi, Brooke. Hello, my dear. Did you like that I was feeling Wilson Phillips when I was posting the IG? Um little hold on. I was just, I was channeling sort of like, you know, 80s, 90s, getting excited for this conversation. So that got me excited to get to talk to you. Thank you (laughs) for knowing that I am an 80s music girl and always will be. And thank you for for all that. So I've been looking forward to talking to you about this. Your book is great. Um, It's eye-opening. It's thought-provoking. I just have never thought of our support systems in this way, in the huddle. And so why don't you just start by defining it for everybody out there. What is the difference between a huddle and just, you know, a close-knit group of girlfriends? Sure, sure. So how I'm defining huddle, and it is so exciting to be here. Thank you so much. Um, How I define a huddle is where women are energized by the mere fact of their coexistence. Like a huddle can be two women, it can be 2,000 women, it's where uh, women, it can be productive and to bring about, you know, change. Uh, it's where women thrive and succeed and, and get amazing stuff done. Um, but can, it can also be a place where women quietly, you know, bear witness for one another. And the, the key difference from, you know, maybe a, a, a group of girlfriends or, or whomever is there's real intentionality behind huddling, behind having a huddle. And the mission is clear to build a, a bigger table, to build an entire table for women. That was the impression that I got, that, that huddle implies some sort of call to action. You know, a close-knit group of girlfriends, you can all be together for a night, and it is energizing, and it's wonderful, and you can all be drinking wine. But with a huddle, it seems like there is some sort of mission statement. Yes, Yes, the mission being building a bigger table. You know, it's 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 different from network. I get, I get the question a lot too. You know, in terms of the workplace, like how is it different from networking? You know, network. Sometimes you think of networking as maybe your 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 father's boys club, or maybe you run into a couple of girlfriends at happy hour at the bar. But again, it's like the notion of real intentionality behind it, and 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 just building an entirely new table, which is what I heard from so many of these women, so many of these huddles I interviewed for this book. And one of the things that you discovered, and I discovered upon reading it, that that huddle's not new. This is a concept and a practice that has a legacy. So tell us about that. 
Yes. So I'm very quick to check my privilege as a white woman, you know, growing up in Atlanta um, in, in really the 80s, uh, especially in my experience is obviously different from so many other women in, in this country. Uh, I'll start with just white women. And I talked to this professor, Kristen Goss uh, at Duke, who referred to a huddle drought. So she was saying, you know, when you look back to the 50s uh, and 60s, you think about, you know, Betty Crocker and June Cleaver weren't just like hanging out in the kitchen and baking their pies. They were actually doing that and then hopping the picket fences to go, you know, testify in front of Congress or, you know, organizing for, for legal women voters. And then a lot of these women then went to work. And then came this huddle drought she described in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s for white women. For Black women, totally different story. For Black women, huddling, there's like a just a real rich legacy of huddling that, that predates slavery. Of course, you know, I talked to a lot of Black women about this and this Black historian, Kimberly Springer, and she wanted me to make sure I emphasized, you know, not just during slavery where, where Black women oftentimes were all they had, but also predating slavery that, that Black women just you know, centuries ago, genuinely just enjoyed the sisterhood, right? And so then you think of Black women getting into the to the 80s and the 90s, the womanist movement, links organization, the richness of Black sororities. Um, and so they were continuing to, to huddle the, the Million Women March in 1997 in Philadelphia, this grassroots effort, like half a million women showed up, which really rivaled, you know, what I experienced covering the Women's March in Washington, January of 2017. So it's just interesting. And I wanted to honor also Black women huddling by really starting my huddle journey in Houston with the nine Black women judges. And we'll get into that. We'll get into all of the high profile people yeah. that you interviewed and what you learned from them. But I was interested, Brooke, to learn that you were not great at the huddle or you didn't have access, <laughs> I guess. Maybe that's a better way to phrase it to the huddle, because you, to me, are the consummate networker. I, that's how I know you. So I, I obviously met you seven years ago when I joined CNN and you you're just somebody who is a connector. I think you're um, a really excellent networker. So why were you missing the huddle early in your career? I will take the compliment and compliment and thank you and and say that, you know, growing up in my girlhood, um, I definitely was in the middle of multiple girl huddles, whether it was from gymnastics or whatever other sports I was playing or, you know, like running for girls class president, like more times than, than you know, one really probably should. Um, so I always love being in the girl class president. Say it again. But did you ever win class president? Twice. Yeah, you did. I, I did. knew it. I did. I did. So I, I loved leading groups of women, young women and girls. And then Allison Camerata, you know, I jumped into journalism, 21, graduating from the University of North Carolina. You know the deal, you know, moving to, for me, I moved to, you know, there's like 200 TV markets. One is New York, San Francisco is certainly in the top five. And then 200 is some small town in Alaska, and I landed 192 in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I certainly did have some girlfriends, but I didn't have a huddle. I was basically huddle-less, and I come clean about this in the, in the book. Like I was huddle-less all through my 20s and into my early 30s, because once I would, you know, make a make a singular girlfriend at some TV station, right, then then that girlfriend would like get promoted and up and leave to another town. And so I just didn't have, I never had this group of women until I didn't get all of my good girlfriends together in one room until I was 38 just before I got married. And and shame on me. But the 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 broke Baldwin, you know, is is this huddler because I quickly realized. 
I needed to change that, that, that my happiness and my success was, was also contingent upon the strength of my huddle. And so I have learned how to activate and nurture my huddle, which I'm hoping, you know, will also inspire other women to do the same. Oh, for sure. I mean, no, your book is incredibly inspirational, as is your story. But, you know, in my early years in television, I had um, a lot of male mentors. I had male mentors. I had bosses. Some were crappy bullies and some were great, supportive mentors. So can any men be in a huddle? Oh, men, men, the, the way I'm writing the book, it is all women huddles, but we need, we, what, what the differentiation is, and I dedicate the book to my mom, my original huddle, but then also to my husband. And I wrote something like, you know, thanking, thank you for loving me and being one of many men supporting women huddling. So we need, it is so important that, that, that men um, aren't threatened by a group of women getting together or, or don't also, you know, look at a group of women together and thinking of something more pejorative, like that's cute. And you go, you know, go, go shop, like whatever ladies, you know, we need, I need, I I'm asking men, our husbands, our sons, our brothers, our fathers to acknowledge the importance of the huddle and to honor it and support it. So tell me about this journey. Tell me about how you got the idea and then you're kind of traversing the country and the high profile or just powerful women that you talk to about this. I truly believe that outside of representation, power and access that Allison, women are one another's best assets, right? So I had all these girl huddles when I was growing up in Atlanta and then ultimately, you know, jump into a very male dominated industry that is TV news and became very aware of my gender in a way that I had never before. And, and also other women, especially starting out, but through the years, women who were not huddlers, who have sharp elbows. And one of the keys to having a huddle is, you know, F sharp elbows, because we need to link arms, right? Instead of leaning in so hard that we smack our foreheads, which is totally what I did as a cub reporter 20 years ago. And then the the real game changer for me was, and you were there in Washington, Trump inauguration weekend. I can still see you as I was literally embedded in the Trump motorcade. Yes. I got this. this. I can see you. I'm so glad you're saying that because when I read your book, I was like, oh, I remember that moment. The red jacket. Yes. You were in the red jacket and you were in the back of a flatbed going through the motorcade. And I was up on one of the risers looking out over the plate. And I remember turning around and being like, and here comes Brooke now. Brooke, and like waving to you as you yes. were posting. Yes. And that was an intense moment. You remember that weekend in Washington, it was like, it was like, journalistic emotional whiplash and also as women right so on a Saturday we're all there I am balancing on the back of this flatbed truck I am embedded in the Trump motorcade inauguration has happened President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump are winding their way down Constitution and I am like narrating as I'm bumping along on this on this flatbed truck as he makes his way to the White House for the first time and if we all try to remember back to that was January of 17 you know not not too many months prior the video came out of where Donald Trump liked to grab women, boasting about that. And I couldn't help standing on the back of this flatbed truck, trying my damnedest to be objective. I couldn't help but think, what are the next four years going to look like? And as a woman and as a journalist, I was troubled. 
Then the very next day, I'm back on the clock for CNN. I am backstage at the Women's March. All the MAGA hats are gone. The pink hats have replaced them. I am surrounded by what I'm going to say is the largest huddle I've ever been in the middle of in my entire life. I had never been surrounded by so many women. Um, and I was I was moved deeply. You know, I had been covering the presidential election. I I noticed that women were showing up in a way in this country that I'd never seen before in my 20 year career. And so to be in the middle of this giant huddle at the Women's March, like that's when I knew I needed to dedicate the next chapter of my career to, to shining a light on women and not just famous women, but what I affectionately refer to as extraordinary, ordinary women. And that really, Allison, was the unofficial beginning of this book. And then the last thing I'll say about it is yeah, I stood there as recent as 2017 and looking around at these women and taking my reporter hat off. And I had this whole internal dialogue of, would I have had a huddle? Would I have had a group of women who would have shared a gas tank or stood in the long porta potty lines and, you know, made our, taken our magic markers and made our poster board? And the answer is no, I didn't. And I knew that needed to change. So you were inspired that moment by everything. I mean, that was such a member. Well, I remember. I mean, I remember both of those days being just goosebump filled days because of the pageantry of the peaceful change of power. Yes, obviously. And you were right in the thick of it. And I just I remember that weekend as being very intense like you do. And so from there, you you decided to cast this big net and travel around the country. And so tell me about some of the women that you went to interview. Yeah. So ultimately, this book is born. And I decide to instead of, you know, many books have been written, excellent books, uh, highlighting singular trailblazing women, but I wanted to look at it through the collective female lens. Because after that inauguration, there were several waves, right? Me Too happened. Huddles of women, time's up. Huddles of women. Huddles of women were showing up and, and running for um, elected office in 2018 and winning elected office in a way that we had never seen before. Like something clicked with women in this country. And so I interviewed everyone from, you know, Reese Witherspoon and her production company in Los Angeles, Hello Sunshine. They gave me incredible access to the the business structure, to um, one of the most amazing books turned TV shows, Little Fires Everywhere, if you have not seen it on Hulu, that entire writer's room, all women. And that's such a rarity in Hollywood. So I talked to them about that. I talked to Stacey Abrams, not just about, you know, flipping, flipping Georgia, but also, you know, when she started out in Atlanta as a deputy city attorney and was working with these younger secretaries who she felt weren't getting paid what they deserved with their insane knowledge of Georgia legislative history. I talked to women athletes like in the WNBA, like Sue Bird and Neka Ogumake to Sue's fiance, Megan Rapinoe. Um, to, you know, five moderate Democrats on Capitol Hill, members of Congress who huddled to get elected and are huddling to bring about legislation uh, for, for women and women in the military. So like all my weekends outside of the totally slow news cycle. I was about to ask you that. Like, how did you have time to do that? Because writing a book is no easy feat, but also just traveling around. Allison, I had to do it. I had to do it. My soul was screaming at me. Like I would go to work and I would cover this white house, which kept us, you know, they kept us mighty busy in a way that I think none of us fully anticipated. And 
there wouldn't be, you know, because we were covering the news, there wasn't as much room to cover, you know, huddles don't always make the headlines, but there's such a huge part of the fabric of this country. And so I would just book myself a plane ticket on a Friday after my show, make my way to Houston or Los Angeles or what have you, Atlanta, and throw myself into the deep end of these interviews. And, you know, I took then, um, I got most of the big interviews done before the pandemic and then wrote this book during COVID. Brooke, that's incredible. I mean, that's really incredible because, you know, um, having written a novel, people often ask me, how do you do it? And, you know, everybody has their own um, system, but yours sounds like full court press. I mean, you're just, that means working, basically you did it by working seven days a week, really hard. Yes, yes, but I was possessed. I was possessed. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I had to do well, it. I feel called. I feel called. As cheesy as that sounds, like this is this is the work I am meant to do. What? Give us some examples um, so that people can conceptualize. What are some visible huddles? What are some huddles that you've seen in the news or just high profile huddles? Yeah. Well, here's an example. Since um, you know a lot in the crowd uh, live in San Francisco, I got to meet. Chef Dominique Crin, Dom Crin. Um, she is the only woman three-star Michelin chef in all of America. And her beautiful restaurant is in San Francisco. It's called Atelier Crin. And she didn't get there, you know, without some mighty, mighty hard work. And if anyone has ever worked in a restaurant, you know that it is this macho swashbuckling sort of culture. And she was able to push push her way through. I remember interviewing her and she was literally like showing me burns and scars on her arms from shucking oysters the wrong way. Like I'll spare you the details, but you know, she persisted and So she gets to this position. She has this beautiful restaurant in San Francisco. And then she would be doing these interviews with, you know, food journalists and these journalists, she'd be saying like, why aren't you featuring more women? You know, and then the journalists would say, well, we don't know where the other, you know, great women chefs are. And she was like, okay, this is BS. And I'm going to literally bring them to you. I'm going to create this like, you know, restaurant sort of summit and bring them all to, you know, San Francisco where I will drop them in your lap and you can interview them that way. She is always amplifying other women. One in one chapter in this book is about, you know, pioneers who are in these male dominated industries who, who amplify others. So not only does she amplify all these other women chefs to get press, to get attention on the restaurants in various places around the country. She also hires so many women. She hires people also based upon, you know, they don't have to tick all the boxes of like the traditional white male resume. You know, if if you are talented, if she believes you have the special sauce, she's going to hire you. And just the way she changes the culture in her kitchen at Atelier Cren is is, is something to pull and show. So she's one example of a singular woman who amplifies others. Um, I'll give you another, which is where the whole huddle journey began in Houston, 2018, 19 black women won seats on the bench. So judge positions in Harris County, Texas. So this is Houston, Texas. And I remember sitting in my CNN office uh, the uh, day after election day in 2018, and, and somebody sent me their picture because they, the whole thing, their story went viral because of the photo that they all took of these 19 black women before, before they had won their races, all in this one giant photo. And you just don't 
you just don't see photos like this. And it got picked up in the New York Times and, 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 and like across the board. And I wanted to cover them, but we just didn't have like our cup run, runneth over, you know, on a day like that. Um, but I mentally filed it away. And so I knew that I wanted to also just honor the legacy of Black women huddling. And so I started my journey there. And they tell me this story of, you know, how these are women who who have, you know, been, been lawyers for, for two decades. And they have gone in front of judges uh, they could count on one hand how many judges were black and they could count on a pinky finger how many judges were black women. And all of a sudden you have these 19 women or 17, I think, initially who win their primaries. They're in this smallish room. They don't really know each other and they're sitting there and they're looking around and they start to count the faces and they start to realize how many black women are in that room. And they decide to come together. They create this private Facebook group. They have the whole group chat going on. They start doing the circuit black, black churches. Young little black girls are running up to them after they've put this, this photo out into the community. You know, I can, you know, it's all about representation. They all have been members of, you know, two big black sororities and they win. Like they like the Democratic Party didn't even want them to huddle on the campaign trail, but they decided to anyway. But why? Not? why but why wouldn't the Democratic Party want them to? Huddle? I don't. I don't know. But the Democratic Party also. I tell the story of five Congresswomen, former U.S. military and CIA, and the the party also didn't want them to huddle on the campaign trail. I don't know. But both groups of women defied the party and huddled on the trail, and these these. Black women won in Houston. And to this day, I'm in touch with them often. And to this day, they huddle from the bench. Like, you know how people are always surprised when you and I, when we're anchoring in commercial break, you know, sometimes we'll text someone or we're Googling something, right? Um, it happens. And so when I was talking to these women and they were like, Brooke, we'll be in the middle of a trial. They'll be sitting on the bench and there's a question over a legal code or what have you. And they will stop the trial. They will go to their cell phone they will do an SOS call to their huddle over the group text and women will come to their aid instantly. And honestly, Allison, like I am just, I'm, I'm so, I so admire these women because I truly believe that as, as black women, as black women who are mothers doing a lot of, you know, child custody cases, they will change the face of the justice system in Harris County, Texas. That's really powerful. You know, that leads me to, one of the intriguing, uh, I guess, obstacles to the huddle that you bring up that I think we've all confronted in our lives. And that's sort of what you talk about, the scarcity model. Yeah. I think there's a mindset in lots of places that yeah. um, resources are scarce, that rewards are scarce. There's only one brass ring and yes. I want it. Yes. And if you get the brass ring, that means I can't have it. Yes. And so there's a feeling, certainly in TV news, I'm sure that we've encountered, I haven't encountered it in all of my jobs, yes. but at a couple of jobs, there was a scarcity model. And yeah. so there was a lot of resentment when somebody else, when another woman got something, because that meant I couldn't have it. If you got a great assignment, I didn't get the great assignment. And then, you know, it wasn't really until I got to CNN, for me, it was yeah. the abundance model. Totally, you were totally agree. International trips. I had my own international trips that I was going on. I was on New Day. You had your show. Like it was the first time that I saw. Oh wait, there can be abundance in the world, and everybody can have different opportunities that meet their 
desires or skill sets. But the scarcity model is real. And I think that that's what we, all of us watching even can't come up against when you think that, you know, you have to be against whoever you're working with. Yes. And I think this all, yes. And of course I have experienced it and I really have experienced it in my, my younger years. I think back to my twenties, but not as much the last decade, which has been at CNN, because I think, you know, we're 24 seven, there's so much to go around and so many pieces of the, of the pie. And we all truly, truly support one another. And we have this amazing huddle at CNN. But, you know, when I, I write about it in my book, like my first TV job, there was a, there was a woman, she was maybe like six months, my senior in my first TV job. And she yanked an assignment right out from under me that I'd been given um, for the duration of my tenure at the TV station. She yanked it right, right from, from, out from under me. And, you know, I write too, that I, like, I look back because it goes back to like, there, there were only really one or two seats at the table. I I don't like, I'm not hating on her. I might, I might've wanted to, you know, maybe 20 years ago, but I understand the context in which she was just trying to survive and succeed. And I don't know if it is, I think, I, I believe it is changing because talking to so many of these women, you know, I think our society loves to, loves the narrative of women being pitted against one another. And certainly like, I'm not, I'm not. That fight is like the cliche of what it's. Totally, totally. And like, I'm not Pollyanna saying like, that never happens. Kumbaya. We're all like, we're all hunky dory. You know, we're not, but from all of these huddles, all of these successful women, Ava DuVernay, Stacey Abrams, members of Congress, like the, through all of these stories, the through line isn't that huddlers are outliers, isn't that, that successful women are outliers, it's that they're huddlers because they, they believe in the abundance mentality. They believe, you know, all right, I'm going to link arms with you. If I have access to power, I'm going to, as Megan Rapino famously said, I'm going to throw down my ladder. And if I don't have access to power, I'm going to show up vulnerably and ask for help. And I think that the more and more and more we do that and we huddle, there will be fewer, just fewer women with those sharp elbows, which we've certainly encountered. We've certainly encountered earlier in our career. It does change. It does take a shift in the mindset because when you think that there's scarcity, it also, and I've worked at networks like this, it breeds secrecy. I don't Mm -hmm. want to tell you about what great opportunity I've had because I don't want you to steal it like you've had, you know, stolen from yes. you. And then what we've learned through Me Too is when you breed secrecy, yes. you're actually more vulnerable to bad actors. Yes. Because if you're not sharing with other women what your experience is at the workplace and you're just in a silo, it, bad things happen. I mean, there's actually like repercussions to this. Yes. Yes. And it's also why, you know, if you do have access to, to power, keep fighting, you know, we, we need more seats at the table so that fewer and fewer people will be at each other's throats and will be secretive and everything else. I mean, I, I do want to like, whenever, you know, you're ready, I want to tell the story about you and me and the hurt. I'm ready. <laughs> um, I'm ready. But let me say this first. Yeah. I'm ready because I was so touched, Brooke. I was so mm-hmm. touched. I was included in your Were you book. surprised I wrote this story in the book about you? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was. I mean, because you didn't tell me that, and I'm honored, and I was a b- beautiful surprise. Um, but I I was really touched that you included that moment because I remember that conversation. 
you know, we had a conversation and I think it was a sort of unusual conversation. And I'll let you tell the story. I didn't know that we were having a two person huddle, you know, that's not what I didn't, I wouldn't have characterized it that way until now. And now that I know about huddles and reading your book, but I do remember that it was a very direct conversation, which was unusual. You really wanted information. And I think you deserve that information because you were trying to figure out where, what your place was in the world. And you were totally direct with it and not secretive and open and abundant with your suggestions. So, so let me, let me back up. All right. So Allison is this stud anchor who's been, you know, the star of our morning show for, for a lot of years. And I know you're excited about finally sleeping in and I'm excited for you. Um, And so this was within the last couple of years, there was this hurricane brewing along the Carolina coastline. And, you know, listen, I love being in the field. I I love being in the field. And so when a huge hurricane is coming, like put me in coach, I want to be there. And it just so happens that for this first hurricane there, instead, the the move was to put our three primetime anchors because the hurricane's landing, sort of like making landfall around when I'm on TV in the afternoon. And the thought was to have like this triple box of this grand, you know, presence in the Carolinas of our, of our primetime anchors. And that didn't include me on my own show. Right. And so that also happened to coincide with this week at CNN called make you matter week where they like, it's so lovely, you know, highlight various um, on camera and off camera folks. And, and that happened to be the day that you were asked to interview me uh, over a breakfast conversation with majority young women in the room. And they're all sitting there asking me questions about what's it like to be a woman journalist? You know, how did you get to be where you are? And I'm very aware that, you know, like, these three men are going to be anchoring my show later that afternoon. And I'm, and I'm irked and, but I don't really, I don't let on, you know, during that conversation, but when the whole thing ends, I'm like, Allison, can we go in your office? (laughs) And you were like, of course, of course. And we go sit in your office. And I remember like, I remember just like plopping down, like almost laying down on your sofa. And I was like, okay, I'm really upset that I am not, you know, covering this hurricane. And what do I do? And you essentially just said, Brooke, you have to speak up. You need to just go talk to the boss and tell him how you feel and say, you know, like, hey, could you just put me in? If not this time, the next time. And I just, you know, sometimes you just need that. You just need that. Like, I I think I probably knew that deep down, but I needed Allison. I needed to hear it from you. Someone I genuinely respect and whose whose advice just matters to me. And I went and I went to talk to the boss. And what do you know? Like a couple of weeks later, he walks into my office and is like, Are your bags packed? And it's the next, it ends up being the biggest hurricane of the year. And he throws me on a plane and I end up then huddling with other women I know logistic in logistics. And I end up like getting this extraordinary access to, you know, ground zero, this hurricane with a helicopter and, and get put up for all these awards for my coverage. And like that, that was a highlight of my career. And that highlight of my career would never have happened had it not been for this huddle. That's incredible, Brooke. That's just truly incredible to hear because I remember you in that, in the hurricane and in the helicopter helicopter. and just were born to be there. I mean, you were, you were so on your top of your game. 
you know, you deserve to be there. You were born to be there. Your reporting was so stellar. And I also, I mean, for everyone listening, here's my dirty little secret. I'm like, yeah, you go to the hurricane book. I'll be hiding in the warm, cozy studio, having reported from many hurricanes. You don't like he anymore. Like you really desperately wanted to go in. I mean, this is back to the abundance principle. It's like, you could that's something you really want go for it i'll be warm and dry in the studio tossing to you um, which is you know my can i just read i want to read the end of that chapter because this is i just love telling the story about you and so i wrote for me this is one of the ironic benefits of working in a male-dominated field it has given me the opportunity to hone my huddle skills to be more perceptive about how I can help other women and become less guarded about my own vulnerabilities in the workplace. That alone is a tremendous gift. Losing the fear of asking other women for help has changed my entire approach to ambition and friendship. I might not be able to change the forces at play on our culture that have resulted in gender disparities and lopsided power balances in the workplace, but I am able to locate my best allies for weathering this storm. I've learned firsthand how fulfilling it is to root for a female colleague, to openly and honestly express my deepest frustrations about my career, and to share the secrets of my own success with someone who is struggling to find her way. More than just comfort, there is power in female coworkers talking to each other. Even if it's still a man's world we're working in, the huddle is the silver lining. Thank you. It's powerful. It's powerful. I mean, and again, I I think that you're opening all of our eyes to the power of that because there's also a phenomenon at work where there are certain topics that are awkward to discuss at work. And I think that we've all been trained that in polite company, you don't really bring up your salary Mm. really bring up totally taboo your your ambition and your future plans and what your dream is again because of the culture of privacy and the culture of well maybe if you want that and i want that how are we ever gonna resolve Mm. that but you i think are fairly fearless Mm. i don't know where you learned this and maybe you can share it with everybody in going there you know you're Mm. willing to go there you're willing to bring up the issue of pay, you know, pay, equal pay and hours and opportunities. And you sort of taught me a lesson in that because if women don't huddle and women don't share that, you go blind into negotiations. So, you know, you're really at a disadvantage when it's time to step into your power because you don't have any information. Exactly. Exactly. And this is, I'm going to add to that because I remember we talked salary in your office that day and I didn't write about that in the book, but we did, we did. And I I appreciated that because we need to be armed with information. But this is when I would add, this is when men are so important to this conversation, to the huddle too, because, you know, listen, let's be real. A lot of men just make more money and whatever, whatever the industry may be. And it's important to, it is totally taboo. It's been totally taboo to talk about how much people make. And I shared my salary with someone long before you and I had that conversation. And I've had younger women come in my office because I talked about it on my show and I've had younger women come in my office. One is recent as last week, thanking me because she then had conversations with other colleagues at her level and she is now making more money. And I, I think it's helpful if men to share 
you know, it's, it's awkward when you know, you're the person making more money and you're having that conversation. And, and, but if, if, if men, and I can think of one specifically in my head, who's been so lovely and helpful to just say, okay, this is what, this is what I'm making. Um, this is what roughly, I think some other people are making just exactly when you go to your boss, when you have the next round of contract conversations, you you're armed with those numbers to know, all right, if this person's making that and they have this many years of experience and I've been working for this many years, you know, you have to stick up for yourself, but you need other people to arm you with, with that information. How do you form a huddle if you don't have one? I write this whole book. I tell all these inspirational stories of all these huddles. And at the very end, I know people are going to be asking that exact question. And so I have essentially this huddle how-to handbook with 10 examples, 10 ways to activate your huddle and a bunch of well-known people throughout the book, you know, backing me up. Um, Number one is just, and it's so easy, especially in a world where we're connected over social media and just the, the internets just finding women with shared passions. You know, if you are really moved by this Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis, um, I can guarantee what's happened with Dante Wright, you know, not too far away. There are people you can connect with online, even if it's a virtual huddle with whom you can link arms and use your voices. Um, Also important to have a huddle with people who are different from you, you know, who believe different, who, who, who pray at a different synagogue or mosque or church um, you know, my friend Killer Mike, who's this rapper and activist in Atlanta, said to me, I'll never forget after interviewing him in the wake of Ferguson, you know, Brooke, it's so important to have friends who don't look like you. So it's important to make sure that as you're adding to the circle, as you're adding to your huddle, um, having friends who don't all look like you. And then we talked about being vulnerable. We talked about F sharp elbows is another one. Another one is um, doing, I, I credit, of course, we've all read Untamed by Glennon Doyle like eight times now. And she talks about doing hard things. I posit do hard things with your huddle. Uh, I climbed Kilimanjaro in Tanzania a handful of years ago with a dear girlfriend of mine, I was basically like, Hey, do you want to climb, you know, Africa's tallest mountain and hang out with me in a tent, not shower for seven days. I mean, you're like, I don't know if I would have done that with you. Oh, again, I'm like, <laughs> but you know, thing, things like that, or, or maybe hard things may be, you know, being part of a movement or a, a demonstration or a protest or going up, out for something that might be, you know, feel a little lofty for you I just, or, or a physical thing, like running a marathon with your huddle, um, doing hard things with your huddle is another is another piece of this. So I give all this, I give all these helpful hints at the very end of book, into the book in terms of how to activate and nurture your huddle. Are there generational differences that you've found? Are you know millennials and Gen Zers doing this differently than boomers and Gens? I have gotten that question and I wish I I, I did so much research in this book. Um, but I, I I only have anecdotal evidence and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. But it seems to me that maybe like some older women, but but then there are exceptions because I hear from people on Instagram all the time who are in their, you know, let's say 60s or 70s and they've you know are are held up by their huddles. But I do think the younger generation um, seems to like no big deal. Like, of course, of course I'm going to go with my group of girlfriends to do something. They, they don't seem to, I don't, I hope I'm right that, you know, this, this youngest generation won't even have to deal with sharp elbows that, that the huddling thing just kind of comes naturally to them. 
that's my inclination. What do, what do you think as a mom? What are you seeing? Um, I, I think that it's more individual. I don't know that it's generational. I think that it's more individual. And I think that you'll, you will always encounter people who have the scarcity mentality, who believe, yeah. you know, who lead from a place of believing there's deprivation instead of abundance. And I think that that's just human nature. I think yeah. it's informed by your childhood or maybe just your your own kind of DNA, basically. I mean, I, in other words, I with I have twi- you know teenage daughters, and I see that sometimes they work really well in a group and all support each other, and I see that sometimes there's you know infighting mm-hmm. and they're cutting somebody out. <laughs> and I think that that might just be the Lord of the Flies DNA that we all you know, experience in, in the human condition. And so, I mean, what I love about your book is that if you're, even if you're not a natural huddler, you do give those tips for how you can become that. Totally. Totally. So so tell us the, the stories that you heard, give us the most inspirational one for you or which one where you said, aha, I've got a book here. This is going to work. Mm. I mean, I told the story about the Houston judges that to me was, that was first stop on the huddle journey. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm, I'm on to something. Um, I, I'm in a Ava DuVernay, Hollywood, Hollywood. Oh gosh. Okay. Uh, Hollywood is for the most part, a, you know, a white male structure. And in order to penetrate as a black woman and be as successful as Ava has been as a, as a filmmaker. And she's also an activist, but just as a filmmaker and as a director, she's, she's like a unicorn and, but she doesn't want it that way. She, as she told me, like she goes to all these Hollywood parties surrounded by white men. And she was like, Brooke, I don't want to be the only one at the party. I don't want to be at the party alone. And so what Ava does is Ava among all the things she uh, has the show called Queen Sugar. It's a beautiful, beautiful show about these black farming families in, in Louisiana. And it's on the Oprah Winfrey Network. If you want to check it out, it's in the fifth season. And so she has done a thing that really no one has done, which is amplifying all these women filmmakers. And so every single episode of all five seasons of Queen Sugar is directed by a woman. And in many cases, a woman of color. And again, these are women, very hard to break through. And she's found a lot of them from the indie circuit. And so once they have directed an episode of Queen Sugar, they then now can go on and direct network television in a way that they never could before. And so what Ava's doing is she's creating this pipeline of women directors in Hollywood, right? And that's a, it's a, it's a game changer. And just sitting with Ava and, you know, pushing her and just saying, well, like, why don't you just want to take all, you know, take all the fame to yourself and direct all the episodes yourself. And that's when she said to me, Brooke, I don't want to be at the party alone. And she, to me, is just this OG huddler. She, she embodies um, the abundance mentality, the, the, if, if you're successful, I'm successful. And I just got, goosebumps getting to talk to her. And every single time I watch, I'm, I'm in the fifth season watching the show. It's just knowing what's at play behind the camera and how that enriches the storylines and especially writing these women characters. It just, it's everything. I was really struck by that sentence also by her because the, I don't want to be at the party alone really does capture why you would give up some of your privileged position, why you wouldn't hoard it, you know, why you wouldn't hoard all the opportunity. And it's so telling 
because it's generous, but it, there is self-interest in there also. The self-interest of wanting to share it with somebody. It's not as fun to go to a party when right. you don't have your You want to have your friends. She wants to have her friends. She wants to have more women directors in Hollywood. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. no, that was really, that one was an eye-opener. Um, so everybody, we uh, it's time soon to begin getting your questions in for Brooke and I will pose them to her. So, um, so let's just start right now. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, Brooke, as you prepare to leave CNN, you know, start crying. Uh, how are you feeling? And can you elaborate a bit more on the backflip off of the high dive? Great question. I refer to it. I was when I was filling in for Ellen DeGeneres. We were talking about this crazy cool opportunity I had a few weeks ago. I refer to it as my backflip off the high dive. My last day is the day after tomorrow, and I have felt it's been a roller coaster of emotions. But honestly, I felt I felt pretty good about it. And then this morning, I was sitting in our CNN hair and makeup room, and these two like hardened male photographers who you never see in the makeup room. They came to find me because, I mean, these are guys who've like, you know, been to conflicts and wars and all the, all the places. And they came to find me to tell me goodbye. And they were kind of gushing as much as like these guys can, you know? And I just, started to ugly cry right there in front of them. And um, it started to hit me then that I am leaving. But even though I am leaving CNN, you know, you all will know where to find me. I will land somewhere else. Um, And it's the backflip off the high dive is real in the sense that I, you know, and I said it when I announced that I'm leaving, I don't have a thing I'm jumping into. I'm working on it. Um, I would love to have like how, like I believe huddle has legs as we would say. Um, I think I would love to dive into the deep end of storytelling and be in the streaming space and, um, somehow create something huddle tastic. Stay tuned for that. And outside of that, um, I don't know what else, but I'm really open-minded to see what is best for me, but I know whatever it is, it's going to be journalistic and storytelling and allowing me to just show up fully as me. I don't feel like anybody watching is really worried about you, but, uh, <laughs> but I do think that it, obviously jumping off the. It's nerve wracking a little bit. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Here's another question. Uh, with Taylor Swift re-recording her albums after her masters were sold without her consent do you think this is a big moment for women reclaiming their work and worth? Mm, what an interesting question. I mean, Taylor Swift is an interesting person to study because she's young and younger than us, obviously. And I mean, I don't know. I have never shadowed her for the day. You probably have knowing. No, no, I haven't. I've tried to interview her, you know, but, but I mean, she's an interesting person because she appears from the outside to be doing it her way. She does. She does. And I, um, shout out to Randy, my late 20 something year old producer, because she's obsessed with Taylor Swift. And so she, my assignment, I don't know when Taylor's documentary came out last year, I went home and watched it. And it really was, I was like, all right, because of how she, I I get it as as Taylor, you know, you want to have this universal appeal, red States, blue States, you don't want to opine too much politically, 
for fear of alienating some of your fans. But, you know, I remember watching in this doc how she she was like, enough is enough um, with regard to, you know, I think it was a Senate race in Tennessee where she has a home in Nashville. And I was just, I admire her for 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 certainly having a voice and given the fact that everything she's done with with all of her albums, you know, I think that's a perfect example of owning her space, taking reclaiming her space for sure. And she also seems to have, I mean, again, we're not like never met her, um, but she also seems to I'm have not letting that stop us from opining. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like that's not, you know, I kind of I think we would all have uh, a good time. Actually, it's funny. I remember our, our pal Dana Bash met her. I think they're in Vegas. Like, and of course, Dana like wound up in a room with her. And I have this photo of the two of them because Dana's like, you know, this tall and Taylor's like this tall. And there's this adorable picture. Um, but she just does seem to have, you know, strong women who surround her as well. And so I'm going to go with like Taylor seems pretty huddle-tastic. First of all, I like the new language that you've invented. That's, you. that is awesome. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah, no, I, I agree with all that. And Dana is another inveterate network. Uh, like, she's texted me like every morning knowing this is my last week at CNN. How are you? When can we talk? What's going on? Um, I, I think she was trying to arrange something for after my last show. I'm actually flying into of my closest, closest girlfriends who will be there literally as I walk out of the CNN building for the last time to just, you know, embrace me and, and hang with me for the weekend. But Dana always thinking of others and always amplifying other women. Well, speaking of that, I mean, speaking of the in-person embrace, one of the questions is, does a huddle involve or necessitate in-person huddling? Like, isn't it harder to huddle online? Um, I mean, would I rather be in person? Yes. Can we huddle virtually? Yes, as we've all had to learn. I mean, I have a whole section in my in the end of my book, in the last chapter, which is the friendship chapter, two examples of virtual huddles. Number one, I interviewed my sister-in-law, who obviously had the two cutest nephews on the planet, uh, who I cannot wait to see very soon. It's been many months. And she, after she had her first uh, baby, had a really tough time, baby blues, you know, a variety of reasons. And so she reached out and there, there were all, there's like a whole world for new moms to, to just like talk about everything on Facebook. And this space for her virtually was everything as she explained to me. I mean, I, she's my family and I didn't even know half the stuff when she was, when I was interviewing her and then it gave her the confidence to like go on and, you know, have a second kid. And, and also military spouses, perfect example of, you know, women and men who are constantly having to move every two to three years. And they are like, they are Jedis at huddling virtually. You know, they, they knew about Marco Polo, this video messaging app before Marco Polo ever became cool during, during the pandemic because of just circumstances and geography, you know, and they know they just, yeah. So yes, the answer is yes. And what my, my hope is, and I am a glass half full kind of person is that, you know, we've all been flexing our virtual huddle muscles so hardcore in the pandemic because we have not been able to hang as the kids say, IRL. Do the kids say that anymore? I don't even know. Um, but, but <laughs> I hope that once, you know, we've been vaccinated and are able to rejoin the world that just big things will happen. Big things will happen for women when they're huddling. And so, I mean, back to the end of that Taylor Swift question from one of the viewers is, is this a big moment for women reclaiming their work and worth? Mm, I hope so. 
I hope so. I mean, you think of even just using the pandemic as an example. And I think of like, did you know, in the month of December, every single job loss, 140,000 jobs all belong to women, all women. That was such a a forehead slapper. When I, when I had to read that script, I was like, wait a minute, this can't be right. This can't be. Yes. Like during a commercial break, I was like, wait a second. That's not right. How can everyone? And I was Googling it like, Oh my God. Yes. Yes. So women, women of color have been disproportionately affected by this pandemic. When you think of the roles of women, right? We're we're caretakers, we're mothers, we're community leaders, we're sometimes the breadwinners. We are sudden at-home teachers because of the pandemic and our lives have totally changed. And I've talked to, I've talked to women and I've talked to mothers during the pandemic who have had to leave their jobs or have lost their jobs just because of everything else and because of the, the need to be home, to be with the kids. And, you know, these women, many of them talk about virtual huddling, like they have connected through um, Zoom and have lifted one another up and are looking out for opportunities for one another. And so I really believe, I, uh, my hope is that when we come out of this pandemic, that that, that there will be the resources uh, and the, the, the abundance mentality will be alive and well for women. Like that, that makes my heart smile. That's my hope. Next question. Um, the further I go along in my career, I'm losing my huddles. I'm a mentor for many, but I need a mentor and a huddle. How do I get that back? That's a great point. I love this question because as you do go higher up in the ladder, it, the triangle gets smaller, I think, maybe yeah. at the top. And so it is harder. Once you become the leader, yes. it is harder to find your own mentor. Do you, can I just turn the tables really quickly first and then I'll answer it. Do you have someone? Alison Camerata in your life, who you still talk to, who's above you. Like I know there it's sort of like rarefied journalistic air, you know, to have made it as far as you have, but do you have someone? Well, first of all, I don't think I always need to talk to somebody above, so to speak, above me. You know, yeah. I mean, I do think that I can get a lot of wisdom from people around me and even the next generation. So, but I know what this question means. In other words, there comes a moment and I've had it where you look around the newsroom and you go, oh, I'm not the youngest <laughs> in the newsroom anymore. I'm a leader now. Yeah. And it sneaks up on you. And nobody comes ever and like knights you at that moment and says like, okay, your role is shifting now. It just like hits you one day. And I do think yeah. that um, at that point, you know, it is a challenge to look around and say, well, who, who are my mentors? Who can my rabbi be to get me through whatever issues I'm going through now? It's such a good question. And I love how you talk about the next generation because I too, um, being a little bit older in the newsroom, I am so invigorated by these, these younger women who's, who, who I huddle with in a different way and who give me life and fresh perspective in a way that I hadn't had before, right? So number one, don't just discount those younger people who you may be working with because they are bright and have fresh ideas and can can energize, they energize me. I do like having, you know, someone to still be able to, you know, my, I, I do have like a wise council of women, but I will say that they're not all necessarily older than me or more successful or more experienced, but they're people who are in, you know, like various, do various things, but who I just really admire and trust. And, and I even will, you know, like they're, they're sometimes, you know, 
one person can't answer all the things. So I have like a uh, uh, shades of shades of, of, of wise women, right. It's that one way to say it. And I think also, and I, I, I count myself blessed, like having done this book. Now I have a pretty killer Rolodex of various women who I do go to and I do show up vulnerably and I'll text them or maybe call them uh, if they, if they have the time, you know, in their busy lives and their busy schedules to talk to me. And, and I think that if, if, even if, you know, you haven't written a huddle book and you don't have all this like Insta access, I think that if you approach finding those people, um, like you approach your job, like you approach your marriage, not just with intentionality, but just real, real, it's, it's work, right. Especially the older we get, I was just having an IG live conversation earlier with Jessica Yellen. And she was like, Brooke, I'm, I'm, she's, I think she's in her, I don't know, mid late forties. And she's like, I'm single. I'm living in Los Angeles. Like I'm, I'm trying to make some more women friends and it's hard. And do you have any, and can you share some with me? And that's what you have to do. You have to, you have to show up and, if, if it means cold, cold emailing various people who are ahead above you and maybe a different firm, what do you have to lose? I am such a fan of the cold email or like slip into somebody's DMs. No shame in that game. That's what I totally do. And sometimes it works. And you have to ask for help too. I mean, I like what Jessica, I like that Jessica is asking you, like, yeah. do you know anybody? Can you help? I mean, you have to do that. And I know that you are a practitioner of that. You know, you yeah. ask for help when you need it. So I hope with Jessica that you went to your role, Dex, and you were like, huh, do you want Ellen or do you want Reese Witherspoon or Oprah? Who would you like to be friends with now? <laughs> That's what I'm imagining. Um, um, okay, next question. Um, the squad in Congress have been held yeah. up as pioneering women and also vilified as yeah. enemies of America. From your research, do you have any insight into why a group of powerful, diverse women scares people so much? Well, I think you can just, it kind of goes back to our point about why we need men to support the huddle and many men are threatened by powerful women, whether it's the squad. And I think that there are other political reasons why a number of people, you know, despise some of those women's right women. Um, but I think like any time, even, even take the, take the black judges in Houston, they told me that actually when some black men would see their, their presence as a bunch of black women coming together and running for judge positions, knowing that a lot of black men through the judicial system come, you know, are, are tried in court. And they were, they were threatened by this group and worried that these women would like throw the book at them. Um, and I thought that was really noteworthy. And so I do think that whether it's members of Congress or judges, there is this, there is this stereotype of like, watch out women in power, you know, and it's seen as a negative. Um, and how do we, ch how do we change that? I think that's all kind of a work in progress, you know, but I think that you shouldn't dim, dim your light um, just because you've got some haters, you know, do, do, do you be powerful, be the brilliant person you are um, and let the rest fall into place? What would you say? Yeah. I mean, I think that the seats of power are shifting a lot right yeah. now. The sands are shifting a lot. And I think it is um, disorienting for some people. And on great some word. It's a great word. cable TV stations, any given night in prime time, you can hear the fear and you can hear the, we can't let this happen, um, yes. you know, narrative. And, and of course, in order, you have to vilify yes. somebody in order to keep them, you know, down, basically. Great answer. 
Okay, next. Uh, what advice do you have? I work for a female CEO who is surrounded by white men in leadership, but doesn't see anything wrong mm-hmm. with the situation. <laughs> I want we to raise her wrong with, what? With, with her situation. Ah, 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 she uh, doesn't see anything wrong with it. She likes being a lone woman. The CEO, the female CEO doesn't see anything wrong with it, but the person inquiring says she wants to raise that woman's awareness. I'd say it's dicey to raise your boss's awareness or, or tread carefully when you're raising your boss's awareness, but you are steeped in this. So what does one do? Let me think about that. That's a new one for me. Um, I would... I would, I would, I would, I would, I would need like I would have follow up questions for this person, but I, I would wonder if if this person who's asking the question is is it all in a position to where she can at least huddle with other colleagues, other women colleagues, and by modeling that behavior, and if she is in contact physically, maybe not right now in the in the pandemic, but can make can show this boss how beneficial huddling is in her life and how productive these women are around her and, and then go to the boss. And without talking about the boss's situation, I would write an email shouting out the women in my work at, in in my huddle at work and um, not making it about me, but about these other women and just, just pointing it out, like amplifying those women. Um, And I'd be curious I'd be curious how the boss responds and that's where I would start. Yeah. Okay. I have a much easier answer for you and I can't believe this. <laughs> I would buy her this. <laughs> buy her this book. And I would you could post it on it and be like, <laughs> I would put a post-it on it with a bow. It say that says, I think this is something that might interest you. You're welcome. <laughs> that's what I think she should do yeah Um, that's another option too heard this heard this lady Brooke speak she you know was really I was really riveted and she wrote this beautiful book and I'm just curious your thoughts boop yeah well done sister well done you're welcome um okay so we've got one minute of questions left and so I so I think that with our final minute Okay. Um, I have a great question for you. <laughs> a great question for you in this last minute. Um, what's your idea to change the world? <laughs> That's all. Yes. How would I change the world in sixty seconds? Yes. Um, okay. I, speaking from an experience as a woman, I'm going to quote someone I really admire, um, Sarah Hardin, who is the CEO of Hello Sunshine, Reese's production company, and she made this great point, which is. You know, if we have to, we as women have to approach society through an intersectional feminist perspective, right? So if we just, you know, try to replace the patriarchy with a bunch of white women, nothing's going to change. I am no historian. I know that a hundred years ago when it came to, you know, suffrage, white women, black women, they were fighting for the right to vote side by side and by hook or crook, you know, that the black women got abandoned and white women won that privilege. And then it took black women 50 years later. And then through like the feminist movement and civil rights, um, you know, eventually there was a slow reckoning among white women that nobody's free until everybody's free. Fannie Lou Hamer said that. And so I'll just conclude with, we have to fight this fight side by side and we have to approach it intersectionally. And once we build this big table with women um, who all look differently, 
that is how we change the world. You did it perfectly. In fact, the title for your next book is How to Change the World in 60 Seconds. That, you, just, you just did it beautifully. Thank you, my dear. And thank you for being such a, such a friend. And let me just say, you know, I am leaving CNN on Friday, but this elegant human and Victor Blackwell, for all of you CNN fans, you know, they will be hosting during my, my old decade long time slot. And like, I'm just, that just makes my heart warm to know that, that you're taking over, you're taking the reins. So good luck and enjoy your sleep. Thank you. I have huge shoes to fill. Um, Look, I'm I'm excited for the change, um, and I'm excited to see what you do next. I mean, I'm excited to just um, have this front row seat on whatever your next horizon is. I'm always inspired by whatever your challenge you tackle, and so um, and I'm thrilled that you also have moved around the corner for me, which I think is. <laughs> A fantastic development. I hear you're good at making cocktails. So uh, I'm fully vaccinated. So I'll see you soon. I'll see you soon. Um, Brooke, again, the book is Huddle, How Women Unlock Their Collective Power. Our huge thanks to Brooke Baldwin. Brooke, that has been such a fantastic conversation. You gave us all so much food for thought and so much inspiration. We encourage everybody who's listening, who wants to know more, to pick up a copy of Brooke's new book at your local bookstore. It is available everywhere now. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club, please visit commonwealthclub.org. Brooke, love you. Love you. See you soon. Thanks for the great conversation. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, Commonwealth Club, for hosting us. Be well, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.